0: I'm Felix Bunnell, and this is episode 18 of the Housebound Historian. We're reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan, published in 1951 by Viking. In this episode, we'll continue and actually complete the section called John Considine and the Box Houses, 1893 to 1910, and we'll begin the section called Gold. The duel between Considine and Pantagius was intense. Each man wanted to break the other, Yet in the moments when they were not trying to steal each other's acts and customers, they got along well. Each knew the other was an able operator in a difficult field. In their battle for control of vaudeville, first in Seattle, then along the coast, and finally in all points west of the Alleghenies, Constantine had the advantage of Tim Sullivan's political and financial connections. Pantages had the advantage of genius. A man without roots, a man who knew six languages but could write in none of them, a man who had traveled widely and always among the lower classes, a man without illusions, tough with the cynicism that comes from rubbing elbows with pugs and pimps and gamblers. He had an unerring instinct for what would please most people. He judged any act by the act itself, not by the names of the performers. On a trip to New York, he saw outside a theater an enormous electric sign which said simply, John Drew. Who's he? asked Pantages. What kind of act does he do? His rivals scornfully repeated the story. How could a theater man not know the great star of the day? But that was one secret of Pantages' success. He wouldn't have booked a Barrymore for his name's sake. Pantages and Considine took great pleasure in stealing acts from each other. Pantagus probably came out ahead. He worked at it full-time, often putting in an 18-hour day at his booking office, noon to 6 a.m., Whenever Considine announced a star attraction, a juggler, for instance, Pantagius would not rest until he could hire someone better, say W.C. Fields, and put him on the stage the day before Considine's man arrived. Performers, aware of the rivalry between the two promoters, would make tentative agreements with each and wait until they arrived in Seattle to learn which promoter offered more. Pantagius fought fire with fire. While Considine's agents met the trains with a roll of greenbacks, Pantagius' man met them with a moving van. The actors might sign with Considine only to find their equipment at Pantages', who of course wouldn't give it up. Eugene Elliott tells, as typical, the story of a xylophone trio that came to town in 1909. When Considine offered them twice the money, they argued with Pantages that their agreement with him was not airtight and they preferred the schedule at the other house. Pantages got his stage manager on the phone. Are those xylophones down there? he asked. The stage manager said they were. Take them in the alley and burn them. The woodblock virtuoso tore his hair. My life, my soul, he cried. For twenty years I've played those instruments. You couldn't do that to me. Burnham repeated Pantages into the phone. The trio appeared at his theater. The two Seattle showmen fought each other in their hometown and across the nation. Considine had entered the national entertainment scene in 1906, when he allied himself with Sullivan. The same year Pantages had begun to expand by buying out a sixth theater circuit that had lost its principal showplace in the San Francisco Fire. By 1911 the Sullivan-Considine circuit had become the first transcontinental popular-priced vaudeville chain in America and could offer performers 70 weeks continuous work. Pantages the same year made agreements with three middle Western chains that let him offer 60 straight weeks. Better booking procedures won the day for Pantages in Seattle and nationally. He simply booked better acts. Nationally he never made the mistake of relying blindly on New York booking agents. The New Yorkers were likely to send out talent that had succeeded on Broadway, with the attitude that if the Hicks and the Sticks didn't like the act, the Hicks didn't know what was good for them. Pantagius shuddered at such efforts to uplift the national taste. He wasn't out to improve the customers' minds, he just wanted their money. He gave them exactly what they wanted. Ten years after their personal rivalry started in 1904, Pantagius was clearly the victor. Considine was ready to quit. Sullivan had gone insane in 1913 and could no longer raise money, or use his political influence to arrange for good theater sites. The circuit involved a great amount of real estate, but each new theater had been built by mortgaging one of the others. To keep things going, Considine had to travel 100,000 miles a year, and he wanted some home life. The Considine and Sullivan interest sold out to Marcus Lowe and a Chicago syndicate in 1914. They were to receive a million and a half for goodwill and two and a half million for the real estate, 400,000 in cash and the rest over a period of several years. Lowe retained the right to call off the agreement on 30 days' notice. World War I disrupted vaudeville business by shutting off the international circuit, and in 1915, Lowe turned the chain back. Though Considine had Lowe's down payment with which to finance operations, he was unable to get vaudeville going again. In 1915, he told the court he did not have cash on hand to meet a $2,500 judgment. The next year, the New York Life Insurance Company foreclosed a mortgage on his most important property, the circuit fell apart and Pantagus picked up the pieces. By the end of the war in Europe, Pantagus had the strongest circuit in America. He kept adding to it. At the peak of his operations in 1926, he owned 30 playhouses and had control of 42 others. In 1929, just before the crash picked the pockets of the nation's audience and the talkies administered the coup de grace to vaudeville, Pantagus sold his circuit to Radio Keith Orpheum for $24 million. Throughout the struggle, Considine and Pantagius remained personal friends, not close friends, but amiable. Some years after Pantagius had driven his rival to the wall, his daughter Carmen, who had been born in Seattle, married Considine's son, John Jr., in Los Angeles, where both families had moved after leaving the sound country, and where the Considines, father and son, did very well indeed as motion picture producers. And this is the section called Gold. Erastus Brainerd was a handsome Connecticut Yankee solid and sandy-haired and conservative, a delegate to the Republican National Convention in 1904, a pillar of the Chamber of Commerce, a lover of the arts who once wrote a book on painting and served in his youth as curator of the Gray Collection of Engravings at the Boston Art Museum. Though his name is hardly known in Seattle today, this author and editor, whose friends considered him to be touched with genius, probably did more than any other individual to annex the territory of Alaska to the city of Seattle. Certainly he was the man most responsible for making Seattle the main port of the Klondike and Nome gold rushes. And there's a footnote about Erastus Brainerd. Though Brainerd was editor of the two surviving Seattle newspapers at different times in his career, the morgues of the Post-Intelligencer and the Times are almost bare of material about him. When I asked to see the clippings at the P.I., one of the librarians asked, Brainerd? Brainerd? Is he a communist or something? Brainerd started his newspaper career as an editorial writer on the New York World, and later served as an associate editor on two other good papers, the Atlanta Constitution and the Philadelphia Press. In 1890, one of Brainerd's friends in Philadelphia, W.A. Bailey, bought the Seattle Press and persuaded Brainerd to go west to run it. The next year, Bailey bought out the Moribund Times and combined the two papers under Brainerd's editorship. The New Englander ran a literate paper, but his editorial tastes were a bit rarefied for the frontier. Times were bad again, so bad, in fact, that the new Baptist minister was advocating, quote, the practical redistribution of wealth, unquote. The whole state echoed to the sound of crashing banks. In Tacoma alone, 14 out of 21 shut their doors. The unemployed began joining Coxey's army, 2,000 men converged on Puyallup, seized an unfinished hotel, commandeered food wherever they could find it, and demanded that the Northern Pacific give them train transportation east to march with Coxey on the nation's capital. They disbanded when Governor McGraw threatened them with army action. In the midst of all this, the people of Seattle found Brainerd's enthusiastic coverage of art, literature, and South American customs less than exciting. The Press-Times lost money steadily, and finally Brainerd resigned his editorship, and accepted the post of state land commissioner offered to him by Governor McGraw. Land commissioner was an important job. Jim Hill had just pushed the Great Northern through to Seattle and was trying to get control of the Northern Pacific, which had run out of money again. The railroad lines had tremendous holdings in timberlands, and as the first lumber moved east over the Great Northern, far-sighted lumbermen began to investigate the Northwest. Brainerd found his work interesting. In 1896, however, the populists unseated Governor McGraw, and within a few months, Brainerd was succeeded by a land commissioner of the ruling party. Times were still bad, and Brainerd had a hard time finding a job suited to his talents. He picked up pin money by serving as the Paraguayan consul in Seattle, but there seemed to be little future for a Yankee in that country's diplomatic corps. Brainerd was still looking for work when on July 15, 1897, the newsboys chanted, Gold Discovered! The ship Excelsior had just landed in San Francisco with half a ton of gold aboard. A second ship was due in Seattle with an even larger payload. The papers printed extras as each new bulletin came in. Everyone read the papers that day, read them time after time. The whole nation was excited, but Seattle was in a frenzy. People who had crossed the continent and waited months and years in the mud and the rain, hoping for their luck to turn, now felt that they had been led by destiny to the end of the rainbow. It was not just that Seattle was the nearest American rail port to Alaska, though no one forgot that factor for a moment. The real exciting elements in the stories were the names. Among those who had struck it rich were men everybody in town knew. Jack Horn, an inept heavyweight prize fighter from Tacoma, was considered one of the unluckiest of the prospectors. He had come out with only $6,000. T.S. Lippi, who had been a secretary of the Seattle YMCA, had gathered nuggets worth $85,000. And, of course, the rumors ran ahead of the golden facts. The next day, a cutter with an Associated Press correspondent aboard spoke the steamer Portland off Cape Flattery, in fact, again, sprinted ahead of rumor. And there's a footnote. The Portland was perhaps the most notorious ship on the Pacific coast. She had been built in 1885 and took to sea under the name Haitian Republic. She was seized four years later for carrying ammunition to rebels in Haiti during a civil war and an attempt was made to sink her as she left Port-au-Prince. She began operating on the Pacific coast in 1889 as a cannery boat, but government agents found a load of Chinese aliens and some packets of opium aboard her on one voyage. She was seized, condemned, and sold. Her new owners renamed her Portland and put her in the coastal trade as a passenger ship. This was the Portland's greatest voyage. In her hold was more than a ton of gold. At Seattle, a huge crowd was awaiting her at the dock. The stories the prospectors had to tell were fantastic. A servant girl had found fifty thousand dollars in a week. A man had made twenty-four thousand in a day. A schoolteacher in Alaska on her vacation had taken out eighty thousand in a month. A Seattle boy had bought a claim for eighty-five dollars and, without so much as turning a spadeful of dirt, had sold it for thirty-five thousand dollars. A Fresno fruit farmer had come back for one last try after repeated failures and had made a hundred and thirty thousand over the winter. A Negro who had been a slave and made 30000 in three months, then left for Georgia to give his treasure to the woman who had owned him. The tales told by the men on the Portland were unbelievable, until the prospectors staggered off under the weight of the canvas bags they carried. The gold talked convincingly, so much so that it soon became heresy for anyone to believe that a man could fail in Alaska. Even before the Portland dock, she was booked full for her passage back north, 50 first class passengers, including former Governor McGraw, and 98 second class. Seven other steamers were accepting bookings. Half of Seattle seemed to expect to make its fortune by going to Alaska, the other half by outfitting the prospectors. It was the same in the other coastal towns. San Francisco expected that it would naturally be the center of any gold rush. Portland hoped to capitalize on its quick transportation to the east. Tacoma had the Northern Pacific Terminal. Nanaimo, British Columbia, trumpeted the fact that the gold was in Canada, and so was Nanaimo. But Seattle had the natural advantage of being the northernmost American rail port, plus the good fortune that Erastus Brainerd was in town and without a job to keep him busy. And we'll stop right there. That's the end of episode 18 of The Housebound Historian. We're reading Murray Morgan's Skid Road, An Informal Portrait of Seattle, published in 1951 by Viking. Join me for the next episode of The Housebound Historian. I'm Felix Bennell.